Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 237. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we are living in times that are, um, on the one hand, quite exciting because we realize that based on current events, that the second coming of Messiah is surely right around the corner. And yet, on the other hand, the times that we live on are so living are so dark and so frightening and so um, uh, laden with um, confusion and um, unrest and uh, violence. And so, Lord, considering what's going on uh, in Israel right now, it is with heavy heart that we. Um, uh, turn to our studies on end times heavy i say in the sense that there's such um destruction uh that is waiting um uh, uh, around right around the corner for for uh people on both sides of this particular war that we're talking about um and so we you know we're commanded to pray for the peace of jerusalem psalm 122 verse 6 uh, they shall prosper that love thee, the psalmist wrote. And yet, to be pro-Israel, uncertain does not equate with being anti-Palestinian. Lord, we pray for those people as well. Um, according to what we know best, um, you are in control. And, and we trust that you are safeguarding Israel because of the importance uh, and important place that she holds in your heart. And yet at the same time, Lord, it's not your desire to just, uh, we believe, to just completely wipe people out and, and to have innocent people suffer. So, um, Lord, we pray that your will would be done and that we would be um, ambassadors of your name and to properly honor you and to uh, represent uh, your name, but to take a stand where you take a stand. And um, so for that, Lord, we will not um, compromise on truth. Let us continue to keep the proper perspective that ultimately the only way peace can be brought to that particular region of the world is when the Prince of Peace returns to take his rightful place on the throne. And so, Lord, we know that the land belongs to you, and we know that ultimately Yeshua is the rightful ruler because you have declared it so. And the nations are going to rage. They're going to be upset. They're going to resist you. They're going to try to instill uh, their own leadership and rulership, this Antichrist who eventually hits the scene. Lord, he's going to wreak havoc and seek to destroy Israel because he hates you. He hates the Messiah. He hates God's word. He hates God's people. And so um, we will resist as you give us strength. Continue to uh, strengthen us even now. Give us a hope beyond hope. Give us that supernatural insight as we read your words. Give us a, uh, a heart to understand, ears to hear. Uh, give us feet to um, do your will. And help us, to, again, to continue to keep our eyes focused on you and not to be um, just uh, uh, become fearful or become distracted by all of the events that are taking place around us. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for these live internet studies. It's a total of an hour and a half. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. And the first segment is given over to the full hour-long study entitled um, Eschatology, Biblical Study of End Time Events. The second 30-minute study is an um, apologetic study, and we've just now begun looking at uh, Proverbs 8.23 through the lens of the 
uh, Trinitarian who is objecting to the biblical Unitarian perspective that Jesus is not uh, um, pre-incarnate, that he is, uh, in fact, just a mere human, according to their position. So, as we look at this first topic, we're now talking about Yeshua's words as has been recorded for us in three significant places in the Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, or if you back up to chapter 17 to include that and then jump over to 21, that's the best thing to do. This section of Scripture is known as the Olivet Discourse. And so let's just jump right in. You can see on my screen right now I've got the topical uh, schedule pulled up where we're on topic 8, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, part 1. And we basically finished that, and I should have marked this as yellow, um, I forgot I didn't put the right slide here, but we're now technically in Topic 9, Yeshua's Olive Discourse Part 2. So, just pretend like that yellow, the yellow highlight there is actually on Part 9. I'll fix that in post-production, but those of you who are watching me in, in real time right now on Skype, you can see it's the wrong slide. Alright, so basically... Um, I'm not going to read all of Matthew 24 again since we've already made it from verse 1 all the way to verse 28, but using the NASB version of the Bible that I've got pulled up on BibleHub.com's tool, I just want to scroll down through the headlines and show you the headlines. Um, this uh, version of the Bible says that the first few uh, paragraphs, first few verses, are the signs of Christ's return. And as we keep scrolling down, uh, when we get to verse 15, you can see that it's marked out as perilous times. And that's, of course, when we start this familiar language of the midpoint of what is uh, identified as these last seven-year important uh, time frame of history that has been variously called the Great Tribulation or the, um, the Daniel 70th week. I go with the Daniel 70th week label. I don't place this as the entire uh, seven-year tribulation or anything like that, but I do believe that the, seven, that the tribulation will be in this time frame. So we got perilous times, and then as we keep scrolling down, we've got the glorious return. And that's where we're going to start tonight with verse 29, where we talk about the signs that will, uh, what we might call, or convergence, the signs that will accompany this last uh, three and a half years and some of the events that are uh, that will earmark this last three and a half years of the seven-year time period that we know as Daniel's 70th week, a.k.a. the Great Tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, if you want to call it that, if you're a pre-tribber. But if I keep scrolling down, you'll see there's a parable of the fig tree, and then there is the, the, high, the title or the label that says, Be Ready for His Coming. And then that's it. That's the end of the, the chapter there. If we really had time to do a deep dive on this topic, which I don't, we would actually keep going into chapter 25 where the theme continues. But the primary focus of the, all of the discourse has always been just the first chapter, chapter 24. So let's back up a bit and park the uh, page right there. And just real quick, flip through some slides to get the uh, get you kind of uh, uh, acclimated to what we're going to be looking at. So if you look at the chart on my screen right now, we've looked at this in the past. Matthew 24 has these parallels with Revelation chapter 6. And they're one-to-one -one parallels, and this should be uh, the case because it's the same author, right? Our Lord and Master Yeshua gave the words um, to John which he gave to the disciples earlier, although the Revelation version has way more detail, at least um, more kind of what we might call chronology. But when we look at the table, just look at the parallels that are running right down the middle. 
and that's the, the the focus of how you can kind of understand and see how these do to work together there's another parallel that shows up in the books of Thessalonians that Paul wrote, Yeshua didn't directly give those words to Paul the way that he spoke face-to-face with the disciples or he spoke prophetically to John. But when the time comes, and we'll do this uh, in time, uh, not tonight, but it will be um, right around the corner. It'll be one of our next topics. We'll turn to the book of Thessalonians and look at the parallels between Matthew 24, Revelation 6, and the the the. Uh, letters that Paul left us to the Thessalonian churches. So that's one chart. Looking at another chart by way of time frame, reading from left to right, you can see that this is the seven years that we're talking about. It's broken up into two sections on the left and on the right, right? The, the mirroring three and a half years and three and a half years, or 42 months or 1260 days times two, 42 months times two, etc., etc. And we know this to be the case because of what Daniel already left for us, that there was um, a, a seven-year slice that should correspond with all the other seven-year time periods that were that came before it. And this is the final. That's why we call it Daniel's 70th week. Remember, there were 69 weeks that have preceded this. Well, what we're looking at, if if you think about what's taking place in the Middle East these days with all of the violence and the war in is, with Israel and Hamas, and the major players that are on the chessboard, as I like to call it, you know, with um, uh, Iran up there, um, Iraq, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia is somewhere in there in the picture. So if you think about all the major, um, and of course we can't forget America and Europe, but if you think about all the pieces that are needed to bring about the final end game that we're looking at on this uh, chart here, then really, most if not all the pieces are really very, very closely aligned. They're already almost all on the board, or if not, they are all there. I'm not a political analyst or anything like that. I'm just a prophecy student, and so I'm looking at this through the lens of what the Bible describes, which doesn't always give us crystal clear labels of who's who and what's what and what's going to take place. But what we do have, I believe, are sequential events that are significant enough that we can put some type of order to them. And that's my aim as I'm doing this study. And so based on that, I think this chart is fairly accurate. We've got on the left side, Antichrist makes a covenant, and that kicks off the seven-year clock. And whether we'll know who the Antichrist is at that point in time is unknown. It's uncertain that we'll definitely know that he's the guy. But honestly, can anyone really broker a peace treaty in Israel and not have every news camera in the world focused on him? Right? I think it, it, it'll be impossible to hide, but the key point is that Israel won't know he's the Antichrist. They will just simply see him as their uh, savior, as someone who can finally bring some calm to that area where there's so much tension. I mean, that's got to be a supernatural event that's going to catch the attention of everyone in the world. So the seven-year time period kicks off, and then we've got the things that Yeshua talks about showing up in, in the, kind of the, the uh, royal blue there, war, famines, earthquakes, persecution, apostasy, and then we hit the midpoint of the week, and we've got the Great Tribulation, and then after that, we've got that golden yellow, mustard yellow, whatever, day of the Lord arrow pointing off to the right with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. 
But underneath it all, we can see all these seals down at the very at the bottom of your chart. That's the way John in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6, that's the way Yeshua described it to him. It's this large scroll with seven seals on the outside of the scroll, wax seals with string probably, which is the way they did it in the ancient days. And you couldn't open the contents of the scroll until you broke any given seal on the outside. Thus, all seven seals have to be broken before the contents of the scroll can be accessed. And so, going from left to right down at the bottom, we've got seal number one, Antichrist, seal number two, World War, seal number three, Famine, seal number four, Mass Death, and those, of course, correspond to the four horses of the apocalypse. Going in the order, we've got the white horse for number one, the red horse for number two, the black horse for number three, and the pale or sometimes kind of lime green horse for number four. And then we hit the midpoint of the week, with the abomination of desolation up at the top of our chart, corresponding with the mass death that is a result of the Antichrist simply pouring out his wrath, defiling whatever temple is built at that point in time, putting a cease to the sacrifices that will have been going on, and then turning on Israel, in, and they in sheer horror realize that they've made a covenant not with the man of peace, but with the man of death. So he turns on them, uh, occupies Jerusalem, half the city is destroyed, he sets up its headquarters and begins to implement the mark of the beast and worldwide worship of the image and uh, acceptance of his name, etc., etc., the um, uh, forced worship, as we call it. But during that time, the fifth seal also, and sequentially, if you look at the bottom of the chart again, martyrdom, the martyred dead are um, seen in heaven from John's perspective, crying out, O Lord, how long until you avenge? Um, uh, our, our deaths and uh, the, the fellow righteous ones who are going through this great tribulation, which is has already been kicked off, starting in Israel as the epicenter, but then um, quickly uh, uh, reverberating to uh, all places around the world where people oppose Antichrist. This would, of course, be righteous Jews who oppose Antichrist, faithful Christians who oppose Antichrist, and anyone else in the world who thinks that Antichrist is not the kind of guy they want to um, get on board with. But what we do see is that there's this curious arrow near the top of the screen, the slightly off-center but looking towards the right, where the yellow part of that arrow starts. And it says, the coming of the Son of Man, date unknown. That, according to this chart, is the pre-wrath rapture of the church. And that's the view that I hold to. And we'll talk about that in time as well. It's on my uh, schedule. But going from that point, we have the day of the Lord that's poured out as a result of Yeshua coming and rescuing the righteous and gathering them unto himself, which cut short the great tribulation by Antichrist and the wrath of Satan has been poured out. But that begins now um, with, if you jump to the bottom of the chart, we've got the sixth seal, which is, are these signs in the sky, the cosmic disturbances, the convergence of the um, all these signs that are going to indicate that we've got two great events that are taking place back to back. One is the rapture or the coming of the Lord at that point in time, and then we've got the day of the Lord, which being poured out, which is really the wrath of God. Not the wrath of Satan. The wrath of Satan is cut short by the rapture and the pouring out or the, the initiating of the day of the Lord, which is the seventh seal, which contains within it the trumpets and the bowls. And then farthest right on the chart in this particular chart is Jesus' reign in Jerusalem beginning. So that's basically what we're looking at. Here's another view, another chart to kind of get you um, oriented. Same chart, just pre-wrath rapture label. Um, Antichrist signs a covenant at the far left of your screen. 
uh, kicking off the seven-year tribulation or kicking off the 70th week of Daniel. And then we've got the beginning of sorrows occupying the first three and a half years that Yeshua talked about in the first half of Matthew 24. Then we've got the midpoint right there with the abomination of desolation. Then we've got the great tribulation um, uh, commencing after the midpoint of the week and occupying the uh, an unknown amount of time, but at least uh, probably a good few years. Not three and a half years, but maybe you know a year and a half or two or whatnot. And then we've got the Great Tribulation cut short by the pre-wrath rapture. There's two arrows kind of kissing each other there at the top of your screen, near the top, kind of three-quarters of the way in. The day of the Lord is initiated. God's wrath is poured out. And the, the second coming of the Lord is uh, initiated with the rapture there. And then at the end of God's wrath, we would call that the return of Christ. So I'm I'm pushing for a view that will eventually uh, flesh out some more that the rapture and the second, the physical second return of Christ where his feet touch planet Earth and he rides on a white horse and defeats Antichrist and the false prophet at the Battle of Armageddon. All of that takes place at the end of the seven years, not... Uh, three-quarters of the way in where you've seen the arrows of the pre-wrath rapture. So I separate those two events. The rapture and the second coming are two separate events. That's my understanding. Um, The Great Tribulation that we are going to be talking about tonight is recorded for us in at least three of the synoptics the, the, those three these three that you can see on your screen matthew 24 15 mark 13 14 and luke 21 20 and the reason i put all these passages right next to each other is so that you can see that in matthew the language is when you see the abomination of desolation mark has the same language when you see the abomination of desolation but luke says but when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies he doesn't talk about the, the abomination of desolation but since the language that trails out after that is identical this lets us know that we are dealing with the same time frame and then um we can begin to look for these signs that would indicate what is going to um transpire remember as i turn now to uh uh, looking at these verses in question let me back up just real quick to matthew uh 24 3 and Look at this. Yeshua speaking with his disciples. It's uh, it's recorded, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Now look at this. Tell us when will these things happen? Right? When? In in context, he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the stones being overturned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When will these things happen? And watch this. They say to him, "What will be one the sign of your coming, and two of the end of the age?" At cursory glance, it seems like they're asking for one sign that covers two events. One sign that indicates the, 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 the coming of Yeshua and of the end of the age. But in reality, if we look more carefully and, and compare this against the other readings in Mark and in Luke, they're actually asking for two signs. There's one, which is a sign of his coming, and the second is a sign of the end of the age. And chronologically, that is the order that they should happen. It's in the sense of the rapture being his coming and the end of the age happening after that. But then what Yeshua does is he's giving him all these details. And when we get finally get all the way down to verse 30, Yeshua says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. 
though he gives them the details when starting in verse 30, he reverses the chronology, at least in the signs. He doesn't say, this will be the sign of the end of the age, and this will be the sign of my coming. But he does give them, in verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then blah, blah, blah. So, But prior to that, he says, look at the, the immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light, etc., etc. So I believe that is part of the sign of the end of the age, and then the sign of the Son of Man coming follows right after that. So the the point I'm trying to make is that the disciples asked the question in the, in the chronological order that they would happen, and that the signs um, should uh, indicate, in other words, because of the, uh, the chronology of the events that they're asking about. But apparently, if, if we take verse 29 and 30 at face value in 31, then the signs are out of order in that regard. The sign of the end of the age shows up in verse 29. The sign of his coming shows up in verse 30. <clears throat> All right, we'll flesh this out in a little bit in case you're thinking, well, Ariel, I'm lost. All right, don't worry. What I first want to do is turn to um, David Guzik's Matthew 24 commentary and uh, should have parked this earlier and start in verse 29 um, where we left off. Remember, this is part two and we already did uh, um, uh, verses one through 28 and I used my own very, very short uh, commentary that I wrote like over 20 years ago, and I prayed about it, and I feel that what um, the Holy Spirit wants me to do this time is actually use a commentary that's got a little bit more detail, so we've decided, decided to jump over and start using David Guzik's for the second half of this, so that's why you're looking at this. <clears throat> this particular commentary, by the way, is linked in the description below in the video, if you're watching this YouTube version. It's going to show up in the description there. You can just click on it, and it'll take you straight to David Guzik's uh, EnduringWord.com website, where you can find a commentary on every verse in the Bible, which is really fantastic. Free resources. And uh, David Guzik is a Christian pastor. He takes a pre-tribulation perspective, which I do not. However, he's got enough... Um, of foundational information that I can borrow these notes and I can run with it and, and be on board with it uh, for most of the major pieces. I just take the pre-wrath view, he takes a pre-tribulational view, and so that's the only big difference between our perspectives. So when necessary, I'll tell you where, well, that's what he says, but that's not exactly what I believe. But let me read part of this, and then what I want to do tonight is I want to get back into this book, The Sign by Robert Van Kamet, you can see on your screen right now. And this is a book that I've got sitting on my shelf. But there are two chapters in this book that I want to pull some notes from. One of them is the chapter on the sign of the end of the age. And the other is on the sign of Christ's coming. And I want to take a bite out of that. We won't finish that tonight. Eventually, we'll turn to also this these notes on the Feast of Trumpets and its Christian significance. We kind of hit some of this a few weeks back during the break when we were in the... In the uh, Fall festivals, and it talked about had this discussion about how that the fall feasts have this uh, theme that's associated with them that mirrors the second coming of Messiah. First coming would have been uh, paralleled with the themes of the fall fe of the spring feasts, and the fall feasts, in like fashion, seem to. Uh, signify the themes surrounding the second coming of Christ. In particular, there's a saying that we're going to encounter here in a moment where Yeshua talks about no one knows the day or the hour. There are many Messianics who hold to this idea that this could be kind of a cryptic saying that's um, indicating that, that there's actually a time frame on God's calendar that we can know that matches 
the day and the hour language. And so we'll look at that if we can, if we can get to it um, tonight, that would be great. But if not, then just I'm um, giving you a, the advance notice. So let's quickly, I've got a lot of reading to do, and that's what I'll do mostly tonight is uh, reading. So we've got 40 minutes left in this part of the study. So sit back and I'll just read and comment when the time comes. So this is point number four on David Guzik's um, 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 uh, what do we call it? His um, list here, his index of of um, topics coming after. Uh, so dealing with verse twenty nine through thirty one of Matthew twenty four, coming after the great tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ. Again, keep in mind that I'm holding to the understanding that when we talk about the return of Messiah in a zoomed out fashion, yes, there's only one one second coming. Christ returns once. But when we zoom in and we talk about the the parousia in the Greek. Some people say parousia. Um, the second coming of a Christ is broken up into several events. We've got the rapture being that first of those events. We've got him um, standing on the Mount of Olives, splitting it in two. We've got him kind of walking around uh, Edom. We've got him marching the armies back into Jerusalem. We've got him riding on a white horse with heaven's armies. Uh, we've got of the establishment, the, the setting up of the millennial kingdom. So all of these are part of the return of Christ. All right, that having been said, let's read these verses. This is straight out of the book of Matthew again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so we're talking about the midpoint of the week, and after the tribulation has already been going for at least a year or maybe a year and a half or two, Right, it shouldn't go very long because if it went too long, then according to what Yeshua said earlier, no flesh would survive. The but for the sake of the elect, the tribulation period is going to be cut short. We read about that previously, the verse 27-28 of Matthew here. So the tribulation is not meant to last for seven years. It's not even really meant to last for three and a half years. If we take Yeshua's words at their most face value, the tribulation should be cut short by the rapture and the initiating of the day of the Lord. So the tribulation should only last a mere few years, maybe a year and a half, maybe two, something like that. But Yeshua says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is the ending of the tribulation, which some people are going to say is at the end of the 70th week, but I'm going to say it's still only about the three-quarter mark. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. That's figurative, obviously. If stars are really um, uh, objects the size of our own sun, well, they, then they can't possibly fall from heaven and hit the earth. But we might have meteoric, meteorite activity, or they might just we might have shooting stars, we might have comets, but they might be the, the physical stars except uh, actually moving uh, out of place, just not hitting the earth. But it says, the heavens will be shaken, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then Yeshua says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And we're going to find that what I hold to is that the sign of the Son of Man is actually the supernatural brilliance that comes right on the heels of the sign of the end of the age, which was the supernatural lights out, the darkening of all the cosmic uh, heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc., etc., going dark, which uh, th uh, you know uh, throws the entire world into darkness, which then is cut, uh, which is broken by the supernatural brilliance, brilliance of Yeshua 
showing up in heaven. David Goods is going to say he's not quite sure what the sign is, but um, and I could be wrong myself too, but I'm holding to the idea that it's the supernatural brilliance given the um, analogy that Yeshua gave. Uh, so, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. One version of this verse says all the tribes of the land, instead of the word earth there, can be translated as land, i.e. the land of Israel. Uh, and that makes sense when we say tribes, we're talking about tribes of Israel, but this could mean tribes of the earth because I think this is an, an international event when Yeshua returns, um, everybody, every eye will see. And it says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And just that, he comes in the clouds, but his feet don't touch the earth just yet, because I believe this is the rapture. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. That gathering of his elect is the rapture event. And notice the language taken at full face value is that we are gathered up to meet Yeshua in the air, in the clouds, and then we go and we be with, him, and we're uh, we're uh, to be with him. By comparison, near the end of the seventieth week, when Yeshua returns from heaven to go back down to earth again. He's riding a white horse, and the armies of heaven, which includes us, are riding with him. And this time, he, he touches down on earth, so he doesn't remain in the clouds. So there are some very noticeable differences between the rapture event where Yeshua returns and the second coming where he establishes his kingdom on earth. And I think that's for a reason. So let's begin to um, talk about this from David Guzik's perspective. Uh, point number A, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Several prophetic passages describe the cosmic disturbances that will precede and surround the glorious return of Jesus. So notice when we go back and look at that Matthew 24 verse there, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If you take the first coming there, the, the parousia in the Greek, if you take that to mean the rapture, well, that's the sequence. Chronologically, the rapture, the sign of his coming comes, I mean, his, his return to snatch the saints away comes first, and then the end of the age takes place with the pouring out of God's wrath the Battle of Armageddon ultimately is the end of the age. The end of the seventh week is really the end of the age. So, chronologically, Yeshua comes first and then the end of the age happens. So even if we take the second sign of, even if we take the coming here that we're seeing in this passage to refer to as the second part where he establishes his kingdom, nevertheless, the earth isn't. Um, uh, Antichrist isn't destroyed and the, the age doesn't come to an end until Yeshua returns first. Understand what I'm saying? It's Yeshua's bodily return to planet Earth and the defeat of Antichrist that signals the, that finally indicates the end of the age. So, in other words, the end of the 70th week is the end of the age, is what I'm trying to say from a, from a more natural way to describe it. So, either way, Yeshua returns first, whether it's at the rapture event or it's at the, what we call the second coming. Either one, either way, that, that precedes what we would call the end of the age. But then Yeshua gives us all these details, and then we, in verse 29, he says, But immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. I believe that that is the sign of the end of the age, verse 29. And then verse 30 is the sign of the second coming. So the signs seem to be oddly out of order, or at least the way Yeshua is describing them, they are. But 
the chronology is that Yeshua returns first and then the end of the age happens. So that's what I'm trying to get at. When we get to um when we get to Robert Van Kamen's book, we'll see this more in detail. So several prophetic passages describe these cosmic disturbances that are uh that coincide with the what we call the end of the age or the sign of Yeshua's return, the day of the Lord commencing, things like that. Part B, David Guzik says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It's difficult, he says, to say exactly what the sign is. It seems to precede his return, as described in Revelation 19.11. Perhaps the sign is somehow related to the incredible cosmic disturbances that will precede the great event. He's right. The, the sign of Yeshua is connected to the sign of the end of the age. In other words, with the darkening of the of the cosmic powers in heaven, the sun turning black as sackcloth, like Joel describes it, the moon turning to blood, what we've described as blood moons uh, in, in previous uh, teachings that you can find on the internet all over the place, and then the stars not giving their light or falling from sky, or etc., etc. So the cosmic powers in the heavens, both day and night, will be darkened supernaturally, and then with the supernatural brilliance of Yeshua lighting up the sky like lightning flashes across the sky, Every eye will see his return. It will not be a hidden event. That's the point that we're trying to make. And I believe that those are the two signs. I, again, I could be wrong. It could be one sign. And uh, it's just a sign with the, the cosmic disturbances. We'll look at different charts as we keep going and see how this fleshes itself out. Subpoint I in, in David Guzik's notes here, uh, in his outline, some in light of the Roman emperor, Constantine's vision thought the sign of the Son of Man would be a cross in the sky. More probably, it is simply a way to describe the physical, visible return of Jesus to the earth from heaven. And then um, Roman numeral point number two, uh, lowercase ii. Others point out that um, Simeon, which is the Greek version of the word sign, is the LXX translation for the standard or banner referred to in the Old Testament as a signal for the gathering of God's people. That's according to France. So when he says the sign will appear, we could translate it as the signal will appear. The signal for what? The signal for certain events to take place. Uh, Subpoint number three, Barclay on um, Simeon, it is the regular word for the arrival of a governor into his province or for the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority and in power. Makes sense because Yeshua is the one who has ultimate authority and power, and he is the one who is announcing his arrival. Let's keep going. Point number three for David Guzik, they will see the sign... I'm sorry, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The word clouds there, the, the, the mention of the clouds, is also described in the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man approaches on a cloud uh, to approach the Ancient of Days, and there are clouds mentioned in that Daniel 7 prophecy also. We also know from other passages, I think uh, the Thessalonian passages talks about the clouds, and so... The clouds figure prominently in the return of Christ and in both places, whether we're talking about the rapture or we're talking about the second coming. Clouds seem to be part of the equation. So I think that's there for a reason to cause us to realize that there's a little bit of paralleling or prophetic telescoping, even within the the different aspects of Yeshua returning and the clouds kind of... uh, 
kind of what we might say unify that that picture as we uh, recognize that Yeshua is not just the one who rides on the clouds. He's not the what just the one that's described in the Bible as riding on clouds, but God the Father, God Himself is described in the Old Testament as the one who rides upon the clouds in his chariot. Guzik says that this is the fulfillment of the end indicated by the sign of the abomination of desolation. Yes, we could consider that a sign as well. Since this has not happened yet, neither has the abomination of desolation. Right? We haven't seen the abomination of desolation take place on the scale that the Bible describes it. We've had some precursors. We've had some practice runs. We've had our Antiochus Epiphanes abomination, abominate or desolate. I'm sorry, the temple uh, in 200 uh, BC, BC, but you know before Yeshua, he desecrated the temple. Then it was kind of like a practice run. You might call it um, the precursor to the final desecration. It's going to take place uh, sometime in the future. If you're a futurist, if you're a preterist, you're not looking for any future events to take place, but David Guzik is not a preterist. He does not hold to the view that all of these took place, these events took place. He's of the perspective that I am, that he's a futurist, that he believes that we're looking for something to take place in the future. We'll see this here in a moment. He uh, Guzik talks about, again, those who claim that all or most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the Roman contest, conquest of Jerusalem and Judea in AD 70 are in an unenviable position. He's taking a jab at the preterist, right? This indicates that Guzik is not a, a preterist himself. He's a futurist. He goes on to say, of the preterist position, they, speaking of the preterists, they often claim that Jesus fulfilled this coming on the clouds of heaven of the Son of Man with power and great glory by coming, quote-unquote, in judgment against the Jewish people in AD 70. Sounds suspiciously like a supersessionist replacement theological position myself, which, true to its form, the preterists often have to resort to forms of dispensationalism that include supersessionism and replacement theology which which seeks to remove Israel out of the picture in place of putting the church in the picture removing the law of God out of the picture the law of Moses so that we can establish the law of Christ saying that we're no longer under the law we Christians are no longer under the law Israel is no longer God's people in that regard or from a dispensation perspective Israel has been put on back burner so to say so all of this is kind of part and parcel with many preterists or hyper-preterists or many dispensationalists. David Guzik, I believe, is a dispensationalist, but he is certainly not a preterist. Let's keep going. Point number, sub-point number of uh, Roman numeral II. Even some of those who believe that most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem understand that this is a stretch too far. And then we have a quote from Bruce. I believe that's F.F. Bruce. Quote, from the foregoing exposition, it appears that the coming of the Son of Man is not to be identified with the judgment of Jerusalem. Clearly another non-preterist position. Moving on to point number five. Like I said, we're just going to do a lot of reading. And at this point... Jesus speaks more regarding the timing of these events, and he's going to talk about the parable of the fig tree. But what I want to do, since we've got a good 25 minutes left, I want to interrupt David Guzik's outline here at point number five, where we're going to start talking about the fig tree. And since we just read about the signs of the end of the age and of the, sign, of the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds and those things, since we just read about that, I want to turn now to Robert Van Kamen's book, 
the sign and begin to look at this a little bit more closely using the resources from the book and um, looking at the way Van Campen describes these signs. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe this is a very, very valuable and helpful way to look at this particular part of Scripture. You don't have to fully agree with it. Uh, the way Van Campen describes it, but I do want you to be aware of it so that you can have it as a part of your study resources so that you can go back and um, research on your own and see if this is worth getting on board with. I've already uh, um, come to the conclusion that this is a very, very um, tenable position, and so far it's the one that I'm going to hold to until I'm shown otherwise. So, that being said, let's turn to Robert Van Campen's book, The Sign. Okay, now that we've got Robert Van Campen's book opened up, let's start at chapter 14, and this one's entitled The Sign of the End of the Age, and then after that we'll turn to chapter 15 with The Sign of Christ's Coming. And he put these chapters in this order because he believes that um, these are this is the order of the signs themselves, even though chronologically depends on how you're looking at it if you go rapture then sign of the end of the age or uh, uh, initiating of the end of the age and then yeshua returning bodily then we would have like a sign a sign and a sign i guess but as we begin to read you'll see why he put the chapters in this order so he says and again i'll just read as much as i can the next two chapters should be the most exciting part of this book and then let me skip past that um to uh just uh read the pertinent part Timeless questions. How much longer, O Lord? When will you return? Even before the end times, these questions burn in thoughts of every genuine Christian, especially those undergoing great distress in their lives. How much more will they burn in the hearts and minds of Christ's church during the great tribulation by Antichrist in the last half of the 70th week? Remember, we're, we're right in the middle we're at the midpoint we're in the middle of the great tribulation and as we look at the chart we see the white and the black arrow kissing each other there where it says pre-wrath rapture we're going to start zeroing in on that part so indeed van campen says these questions were raised by the disciples even while christ was here on earth at his first coming quote when will these things be they ask and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age and then he talks about how that uh it was during the passover week when these events would be uh, when Yeshua would be uh, talking about these particular events. And and then he gives a little bit of a background. I'm not reading all of this for, for, for brevity's sake, for time's sake. I don't want to read all of it. I just want to try to jump to the highlighted parts or the parts that I want to highlight in our particular study. And so he's talking about how that um, Yeshua was explained to the disciples that he would be uh, uh, handed over to the Roman authorities, that he would have to be crucified, that he'd be resurrected. Uh, so he'd be leaving. And so they knew with that, within that kind of context that Yeshua would leave. And they did. They were on their on their minds was this idea: Well, when are you going to return? When if you're going to leave and go back to heaven to be with your father, when are you going to come back? So that's where we pick up our reading. And so Van Campen records, rightfully, his disciples were sorrowful and confused because of the upcoming crucifixion that was about to take place. While leaving the temple, he gave his disciples the Temple Mount Discourse, telling them that not one stone of the magnificent temple structure would be left upon another because of the disobedience of his people right israel is going to be left their house is going to be left desolate and they won't see him again until they cry out blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord right Baruch Adonai. 
Well, it's in that context that Yeshua gives them the details of the, the Olivet Discourse. Van Campen records, he also told them that the day would come when he would return with power and great glory, leaving the temple, crossing the valley to the east side of the Temple Mount, and sitting on the Mount of Olives, which faces the temple, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be, what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age, Matthew 24, 3, like I read earlier. When after the destruction of the temple will when after the destruction of the temple will you come back to us? And more specifically, point number one, what will be the sign of your coming? And point number two, what will be the sign of the end of the age? According to 1 Corinthians 1.22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. It's interesting, Van Campen says, to note that the disciples ask their questions in the specific order that these events will occur. Notice this. First, Christ will return, and then God will pour out judgment at the end of the age. Right? That's what they asked. What will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? So, they ask the questions in the order that the events will occur. Likewise, in Matthew 24, 4 through 29, Christ answers these questions in the order asked by the disciples. But, then Campus says in verse 30, Christ makes it clear that the signs will occur in the reverse sequence of the events. That is, the sign of the end of the age actually precedes the sign of Christ's coming. And that's why the chapters are labeled as 14, the sign of the end of the age, and chapter 15 is the sign of Christ's coming. Understand now? So we're reading about the sign of the end of the age, even though the chronological event will take place after Christ's return. So the signs, um, the events are in the right order, but the signs are out of order from our perspective. So that's what Van Campen's, that's his, his uh, hypothesis here. I think makes sense also is the way I'm understanding which signs they are, and we'll read about them here in a moment. So um, just one more time, the, uh, the events are in the right order, obviously, but the signs, according to verse 30 at the normal reading, the signs occur in the reverse sequence of the events. Signs are not out of, uh, in the same order as the events. Uh, Van Kampen says, It is essential to understand the order of the sequence of, of the signs and the events according to the way Christ taught that this will occur, that the sign of the a end of the age will actually precede the sign of His coming, strange as that may seem, in light of the fact that Christ's coming will actually precede the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord really is the, the major signal for the end of the age. Going back to that chart uh, right there. The day of the Lord, as you can see on your right side of your screen, is equivalent to, the God, to God's wrath that's going to be poured out. Which, if we look at the previous chart here, the day of the Lord, a.k.a. God's wrath, that yellow arrow pointing to the right, is really containing the seventh seal, which in itself contains the uh, seven trumpets, which also uh, of which the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So all of that is the day of the Lord, which we believers are exempt from according to a normal reading of Scripture, which is why the rapture must take place prior 
to the day of the Lord in order to rescue us from the day of, of, the, of the Lord being poured out upon believers or the wrath of God being poured out upon the believers that are uh, uh, identified as what we would say the church. So I do not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe in a pre-wrath. But if you say that the tribulation is the wrath of God, if that's your definition of the, of the tribulation, the wrath of God that's poured out against wicked humanity, then I wouldn't mind using the label pre-tribulation if your definition of tribulation is, in fact, limited to the day of the Lord. In other words, in case you're not catching it, according to the pre-wrath position that I hold to, jump back over to that chart, the pre-wrath rapture, I hold that there is a marked difference in Scripture between what's known as the Great Tribulation, a.k.a. the wrath of Satan, and the day of the Lord, a.k.a. the wrath of God. Are you catching that? So that's the difference. We Christians are not going to go through the wrath of God being poured out, a.k.a. the day of the Lord, but there's every indication that we will go through the great tribulation, a.k.a. the wrath of Satan. So that's the big difference. All right, let's go back over to Van Campen. So we've got the... Um, sign of the end of the age preceding the sign of the second coming of Yeshua or the rapture of Yeshua, even though the second coming, i.e., aka the rapture, precedes the day of the Lord being initiated or the end of the age. So, Van Campen says, We're going to do this, uh, we're going to explain this by first considering in this chapter what will be the sign of the end of the age. This is chapter 14 in his book. And then in the next chapter, which is chapter 15, like you can see right here, Van Campen says, and then in the context, in the next chapter, we'll turn to the second question, what will be the sign of Christ's coming? Okay. Christ's answers to disciples' questions are given along with one of our Lord's strongest warnings, warning that every Christian who enters the 70th week needs to heed with other, utter seriousness. By the way, I do not believe we are in the 70th week just yet. I know many uh, teachers who do believe uh, close friends of mine who believe that we are already in the tribulation week, considering what's going on in Israel with the war on Hamas right now and the uh, turmoil in the Middle East that's been brewing for so long and now is uh, broken out into full-scale war. Many Bible prophecy teachers believe that um, this means that we are in the 70th week, we are in the tribulation week. Uh, I don't hold to that position, but I do think we're right at the doorstep. What I'm looking for and I'm saying this just by way of context, what I'm uh, anticipating for the 70th week to commence is that arrow on the far left of your screen, Antichrist makes covenant. That's the beginning of the 70th week. This corresponds or correlates with Antichrist signs covenant on the far left of this particular arrow. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this particular screen as well. This particular uh, chart is um that is the beginning of the seven years i don't believe we're there yet but we're right at the at the far left of that arrow or far left of this one in other words the first seal hasn't happened yet the first seal hasn't been cracked open by yeshua the lamb in heaven but the events that we're seeing unfold in israel seem to be propelling us towards the necessity of a, a peace treaty between israel and her arab neighbors the hostile ones at least, and 
something that the world will probably witness um or uh you know on all the tv screens and news outlets and social media uh devices everywhere around the world everybody's going to watch israel sign a peace treaty with her arab neighbors i mean just like they did with all the other ones that ever took place between a some major world leader like a world president like most recently we had trump standing there between the the middle east leaders there and what was that the abraham accords so that's really what we're looking at let's keep going for the next 15 minutes or so and van campen speaking of the antichrist he says hoping to lure these believers out of hiding Antichrist will dispatch many false Christs and false prophets who will show such seemingly divine signs and wonders that if God did not secure them in the faith, many of his elect would be ensnared and executed. Thus, Jesus warned of that day, saying, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Again, this idea that... Yeshua is warning his disciples and now us by inclusion, because we, these words have been preserved for us, warning us that when this time period comes and these seals begin to break, and we've got, um, going back to the, this chart down at the bottom, we've got the seal number one with the Antichrist, but this includes um, false Christs along with the main false Christ. So we have um, not just, let's see, not just the chief false messiah antichrist himself in you know but we also have many other uh christ wannabes many other false christs that are going to be on the scene the idea is that yeshua is saying look when 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 the time comes for me to actually return and the true christ actually comes back to earth it's not going to be a secret event it's not going to be hey go up into the upper room there he is or go out into the desert where he's been hiding or something like that the force of his words seem to indicate that it's going to be some monumental earth-shattering event and and well it should be because there's only one true christ so that's the point being made i believe by don't go here don't go there behold he's in the wilderness do not go forth behold he's in the inner rooms it's not going to be some secret hidden um event that only a few people are going to be witnessing and that the rest of the world doesn't know about indeed just like the antichrist himself i believe will be a worldwide event although we won't know he's antichrist right away right why would inter- why would israel sign a, a, a peace treaty with someone they know is going to cut their throats um three and a half years into this peace treaty i mean supposed peace treaty and there will be a measure of peace at that point in time i mean but why would israel sign a peace treaty with someone they know is basically satan incarnate the point is they don't know he's satan incarnate they don't know it's a covenant with death at least they don't know that it's antichrist um they know they're not trusting in God in their hearts, I believe, but God's bringing them to this position so that he can um, deal with them, so that he can break Israel's stubbornness, so that she can be prepared to meet the true Savior, which is Yeshua, who will come a little bit later on, right? Antichrist comes first, and then Yeshua comes later on. Picking up Van Campen's um, <clears throat> uh, notes here, he talks about how the Christ warning here is specific. It is a warning to the church and Israel, by the way, not to be deceived by the great signs and wonders that false Christs and false prophets will perform during the terrible days of Antichrist before the sign of the end of the age is given. We do not know what these false signs and wonders will be, but they will most certainly be awesome displays of power. So awesome, Van Campen says, in fact, that even the elect 
will be tempted to come out of hiding where they would fall into the deadly grasp of Antichrist. Remember, we're talking about the Great Tribulation has already commenced with the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the week and the implementation of the worldwide sign wherein, wherein you cannot buy or sell unless you have this mark, right? The mark of the beast, the image that is a setup and that you have to worship the number of his name, uh, etc. These things are indications that the Antichrist is already in control. Whether he's a European Antichrist, we're not certain. Whether he's a Muslim Antichrist, again, we're not certain. But what we do know is that up to this point, according to the normative reading of Scripture, the Jewish people in Jerusalem will have already been performing sacrifices when the midpoint happens. So there will have been some edifice, like a, some form of tabernacle, or altar, or at least some form of altar that allows for sacrificial animals to be placed up there, that will have been constructed and have been allowed by the Antichrist and the parties that brokered this peace, right? The hostile Muslim uh, and Arab neighbors that surround Israel currently, they will have agreed to this peace treaty, which will have allowed Israel to re- in state these sacrifices. But at the midpoint, according to prophecies in multiple places, the Antichrist is going to cut those sacrifices short by abominating whatever edifice is there, whether it be a full-blown temple or whether it be just be a, um, a tabernacle structure, a mishkan, we're not sure. But it's in that time frame that we're looking at these this intense persecution, not just against Israel, but against Christians worldwide, this pers this persecution known as the Tribulation. And that's why Antichrist, or, uh, Van Cameron's talking about Antichrist trying to tempt Christians from coming out of hiding um, with the false signs and wonders. Also, you have to remember that the two witnesses will be on the scene soon. If I'm correct, if I got my timing right, the two witnesses will show up at the midpoint as well and begin prophesying for uh, 1260 days. So either they show up at the front of the uh, front of the seven-year time period, and then they stop prophesying at the midpoint because they get killed by the Antichrist, or they show up at the midpoint and they prophesy all the way up until the end of the 70th week. And I believe, um, give me a second, let me just grab a, a different resource and look for that, all right? All right, grabbed my actual copy of the sign off the shelf here. I'm holding it in my hand. Um, let me see. The two witnesses... Show up, looking at my chart here, where's the midpoint, there it is, alright, yeah, I was right, the, the, the two witnesses according to Van Kampen, which is also according to the view that I hold to, the two witnesses show up at the midpoint, so they show up at this point in time as well, right at the kickoff of the, uh, the, 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 the tribulation and the beginning with the um, Mark of the Beast, and the implementation of the Mark of the Beast, and the abomination of desolation, the occupation of Jerusalem, the, the two witnesses show up at this point in time. So there will be lying signs and wonders by the Antichrist, but there will also be the two witnesses who are also performing signs and wonders to bring people into a knowledge of the truth, right? They're, they're witnesses on God's side. So there will be people who were born during the tribulation, obviously, because the rapture hasn't taken place yet. Let's keep reading Van Campen. Um... He talks about Christ commands his own with the strongest words, do not go forth, do not believe them. Speaking of these false 
messiahs that will be um, running around all over the place in verse 26 of Matthew 24. In other words, do not be, see, be deceived, Van Campus says, by any of these false signs, no matter how impressive they may be. Wait instead for the real sign, the sign of the end of the age. Then and only then will you see the sign of Christ's coming. He continues, in the Olivet Discourse, we're wrapping it up now since we've got about five minutes left. In the Olivet Discourse, we'll probably finish chapter 14's notes here, and then we'll turn, jump right into chapter 15 next week. Van Campen says, in the Olivet Discourse, Christ had just explained to his disciples that when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall be so what's taking place in israel right now is horrific but it's certainly not tribulation it's not the end of the world just yet so i don't think we're right there just yet but again whatever takes place in israel is certainly related to the 70th week of daniel i just don't believe we're right at the 70th week just yet unless Speaking, uh, continuing with Yeshua's quote, unless those days had been cut short. What days? The days of tribulation, not the days of the 70th week. Unless those days had been cut short, no life of those opposed to Antichrist would have been saved. The bracketed part of those opposed to Antichrist is uh, Van Campen's insert. And so that's a quote from Matthew 24, 15, 21, and 22. That is why Van Campen said Christ's warning was so specific. Do not go forth. Do not believe them. But with the warning comes the promise of Christ, quote, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. This one little promise contained in two short words cut short is indeed pregnant with meaning as we shall see. If the persecution of Antichrist were permitted to run its full course throughout the 42 months allotted to him, which begins at the midpoint of the week, we talk about 42 months allotted to him, no life would have been saved. But Christ promises to cut short this terrible time of persecution, not Antichrist's 42-month time allotment to rule over the earth. The Greek word translated cut short literally means to amputate. Thus, the promise of Christ is that the persecution of the elect of God, of both the woman and the rest of her offspring, right? Remember Revelation chapter 12. This uh, persecution will not be permitted to run the full course of the time allotted to Antichrist, i.e. the 42 months, the three and a half years. Instead, the time of persecution will be amputated, cut short, even though Antichrist himself will continue on until he meets with quote-unquote complete destruction, one that is decreed that will be poured out on the one who makes desolate, end quote. That's a quote from Daniel 9:27b, speaking of the little horn, a.k.a. the Antichrist. And then, as we're continuing to look at this sign in chapter 14 of Van Campen's book, Van Campen says, and so back to the question of the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? To which Christ responded, quote, but immediately after the tribulation persecution of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn or will mourn. And then they will see the son of man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. So that's a quote from Matthew 24, 29 and 30. Van Campen adds, if the counterfeit signs created by the false Christs and false prophets will be stunningly impressive, what of the sign, what of the true sign that will mark the end of the age? In describing this sign, Christ begins by saying that this sign will occur, quote, immediately after the tribulation of those days, end quote, right? That's Matthew 24, 29a. 
referring back to the great tribulation of verse 21 whose days will be cut short when christ returns of verse 22 right that's that's the context van campen goes on to con- to say that he then continues speaking of yeshua he then goes on to paraphrase the classic day of the lord passage from isaiah which explains that on this fearful day the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light thus i will punish the world for its evil isaiah 13 verse 10 and 11. so we're beginning to see that what yeshua gave us in park it there so you can see that that quote what yeshua gave us in matthew corresponds to what was already given in the prophets of old so israel has no excuse we know that israel of today is not reading the new testament so it's it's understandable why they would are going to miss a lot of these details that show up in the olivet discourse as well as the book of revelation that john penned for us as well as john, uh, paul's letters in the book of thessalonians and the other um, new testament writings that contain prophetic passages such as second peter and things like that but what israel does have is the tanakh the old testament according to christians right genesis through what christians call malachi but what jewish people um reorder according to um to end in second chronicles or really the christian order was reordered i think point i'm trying to make is that israel has no excuse because they've got so much prophecy concerning the end time events that have already been laid as a foundation so that when we get to the new testament writings dealing with eschatology we can properly understand those particular parts of the bible but israel also has no excuse so let me look real quick and see how much more i want to read um with van campen um I do want to keep reading just maybe one or two more minutes and then we'll we'll close this part of our study speaking of the isaiah passage that we just read about van campen reminds us that this corresponds identically to the classic day of the lord passage in joel where the lord proclaims through the prophet that quote the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon of the blood before the great and awesome day the lord comes joel 2:31, emphasis added by van campen later joel describes this sign that precedes the day of the lord in more detail quote for the day of the lord is near in the valley of decision later on known as the valley of jehoshaphat the valley of decision the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brilliance joel 3 14 and 15 in other words continuing and I'll, I'll keep going just for a few more paragraphs in other words from these passages we see van campen says that thus that the sign of the end of the age the day of the lord will be the sign that the lord gave joel the same sign the lord gave isaiah and also the same sign christ gave his disciples so that they would know when the end of the age was about to occur when christ would return to earth for the judgment of the citizens of satan's earthly kingdom later in this chapter we will see that it is also the same sign christ gave john in the book of revelation announcing the day of the lord at the sixth seal let me jump over to this chart look down at the bottom of your screen see where it says six seal signs in the sky and then when you let your eyes follow along that line up to the top of the screen it corresponds with the day of the lord and that corresponds to the arrow pointing down to the coming of the son of man date unknown using this chart you don't see that but in this one using the uh, signs you are the uh, seals you can see that so van campen continues thus there's total agreement in scripture as to what the sign will be but there's also complete consistency as to when the sign will occur which is immediately 
after the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24, 29a, but before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Joel 2.31. You have to catch that important detail and the correlation. Christ, therefore, Van Campen reminds us, Christ, therefore, explicitly links together the sign of the end of the age that occurs quote, immediately after tribulation, in quote, Matthew 24, 29a, with the sign prophesied in the Old Testament announcing the day of the Lord, which will only occur when the great tribulation by Antichrist is, quote, unquote, cut short by Christ's return. And then he continues in the very next verse, Christ goes on to explain that the second sign, when the, quote, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, in quote, verse 30 of Matthew, will follow in immediate succession to the sign of the end of the age, which we already saw earlier. He continues, only after these two signs are given back to back, and then we have a quote from Matthew again, then all those tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, which is verse 30. Of Matthew 24 and we'll uh, read this final paragraph and then we'll stop here where we can see the paragraph heading the sign of the end of the age then Campen continues from this we may conclude these three things so listen up I'm drawing my study to a close first the coming of Christ at the day of the Lord will be preceded by two successive stunning signs here they are the sign of the end of the age and the sign of Christ's coming, which we will look at in more detail in the following chapter, which is chapter 15 of this book. Let me just pop over and show it to you. It's right there. Okay, we'll look at that next week. He continues. So first, we've got the coming of Christ of the day of the Lord, which preceded by two successive signs. Second, both signs and the events they announce will occur after the tribulation, or more correctly, when the persecution of Antichrist the, uh, against the elect of God is cut short, reference Matthew 24, 22. And third, and we're closing with this, both signs are given just before we will see the actual coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of the sky, which is the rapture. Therefore, he says, the sign of the end of the age will be seen in the heavenlies after the great tribulation is cut short, just before the sign of Christ's coming is given. And that's where we'll stop tonight. We'll pick up next week where you can see Van Campen's note that says the sign of the end of the age. And we'll just talk a little bit more about that before we turn to the sign of Christ's coming. All right. But that'll do it for eschatology. A Biblical Study of End Time Events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kay Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Torah 
Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a biblical, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This part of our study is about 30 minutes long. We left off beginning to uh, crack open this study on Proverbs 8.23 as seen through the lens of biblicalunitarian.com, who is a non-trinitarian christian denomination they hold to the basic belief that god the father is numerically one with god in the old testament that god is just a father and the father is just god uh they are numerical equivalents they're they are they are the same identity therefore god cannot be the son jesus and god cannot be a separate person known as the holy spirit who is jesus according to biblical unitarian he's the human agent of god that was brought into the world through his, the birth um in nazareth right by his parents Miriam and joseph he did not precede his birth um, by coming down from heaven as some pre-incarnated deified or deity being, the Word of God made flesh, etc., etc. They don't hold to that perspective. They are non-Trinitarian. From their perspective, the Holy Spirit is simply another way to describe God, another word for God, another phrase to describe the Spirit of God, who is very God, but which God can impart to human beings um, to empower them to uh, be obedient to Him and to do His will. So, the Holy Spirit can be poured out on human beings, but the Holy Spirit is just God and no third person. So, that's their perspective. It's non-Trinitarian. We looked at Proverbs 8.23 uh, 8, um, in specific, and we also read the entire chapter of Proverbs. And tonight, we will begin to peel back this explanation of is Jesus the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 8? Is, is the book of Proverbs talking about Jesus when it describes this person or figure that was created, quote-unquote, at the beginning of God's creating of all things? Indeed, we're looking at a bit of the tension between three different Christological views. We've got the Trinitarian perspective, which is the view that I hold to, that Jesus is indeed full deity. He's very God-veiled in flesh. He predates his birth in Nazareth, and yet 
in Bethlehem, I'm sorry, he predates his birth there um, because he was eternally existing with the Father, eternally begotten of the Father. This phrase, begettle, refers simply to his relationship to the Father, but it is an eternal begetting, meaning there never was a time when Yeshua did not exist. Rather, he's known as the Word of God, which at some point in time in history, took on human flesh and became known as the man that we call Jesus. But prior to that, he was still the person known as the Son who existed in heaven right alongside God. Right? Read John 1.1. 1, 1. That's my position as a Trinitarian. He's fully God, but he's fully man. He's truly God and he's truly human. The second position that we're examining tonight uh, in, in primary is the position held to by BiblicalUnitarian.com, which is similar to historic Socinianism, the idea that Christ is a mere human, he's a mortal, he's a, he, I'm sorry, he's not immortal, he is a mortal man, he is fully human, but he's not divine, but he is glorified by God, he was raised up by God supernaturally to sit at God's right hand, he has been glorified to receive worship from all human beings, therefore, in a limited scope, he is a, he is God, he is Lord, but only in a lesser sense in the fact that he has been given some of the titles and prerogatives that God alone enjoys, like worship from humans, it's forgiveness of sins, things like that. So they that's their perspective of who Jesus is. He is human, he's fully human, he's not divine, he did not predate his birth in Bethlehem. The third position that we're kind of skating and dancing around, we're not really studying it in depth, is the position that is popularized by Jehovah's Witnesses that is known by the label Arianism. And it is in opposition to both Trinitarianism, which I hold, and it also disagrees with Socinianism, Socinianism which is what Biblical Unitarian holds to. What do Jehovah's Witnesses espouse to? Their Christology is a little higher than the low Christology of the Biblical Unitarian Socinians, but their Christology still stops short of giving Yeshua eternity in the past. From their perspective, in a word, Arianism claims that Jesus is the first creature created by God the Father, and then from there, Jesus created everything else, or it was the agent of creation that God utilized to create the entire universe and everything else. So Jesus, at least, is older in the Arian view. He's older than the Socinians place him. Instead of being a mere 2,000 years old, he's you know, thou several thousand years old, uh, we don't know how old the Arians say he is, but at least he's the first creature that God created. So again, this disagrees with Trinitarianism, which says that Jesus is eternal, meaning he has no beginning, at least from a heavenly perspective. He was He's eternal just like God the Father is eternal. He has no beginning and Jesus has no end. Right? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, just like God describes himself in the same language. But at least from the Arian perspective, which if I if I was forced to choose between Socinianism on one hand and Arianism on the other, if Trinitarian wasn't an option, at least the Arians give proper weight to the fact that Jesus describes himself as coming down from heaven and then returning back to heaven. Right? I am the bread come down from heaven. I come from the Father. I'm returning to my Father. No one has uh, ascended into heaven except the one who came down first, etc., etc., 
right? At least the Arian view slash Jehovah's Witness view, at least they give Jesus the benefit of having pre-existed in heaven prior to the creation of the earth, and they at least give him that um, a little higher up on the ladder status of being a demigod, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a small G-O-D according to the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen, you can see it later on in post. So, if I was forced to choose between Socinianism and um, Arianism, I would actually go with Arianism, because at least it gives Jesus a little higher position up to scale closer to being deity. But, that's not what we're going to deal with tonight. So, let's turn to Proverbs. Who is this wisdom in the book of Proverbs? Is he, in, or she, as we're going to see, is Lady Wisdom, in fact, the Arian Jesus that was created by God at the beginning of creation? That's what they say, right? Again, Biblical Unitarian says, no, it's not. So, we already read Biblical Unitarian's perspective last week, and we already read through the book of Proverbs chapter 8, since it's a very short chapter. You can see there are only, as I'm scrolling down to the end of the chapter, there are only 36 verses, and we read all 36 verses last week. What we're going to look at tonight is begin to look at some of the Greek behind the Hebrew. I didn't even really, even really read the Hebrew. I back up in my writings to verse 22 and then include verse 23. And we'll get to those in time, but I want to show you this first in this rendering from the Septuagint. Um, what you got in front of your screen right now is a website owned and operated by um, a man by the name of John Barich who is a Christian, he's a Trinitarian, and he's translating the trans, the uh, uh, Septuagint into his own English um, for uh, anyone to access. Great resource. It's going to take him a few more years to finish all of the uh, all of the Tanakh, but that's what he's doing for us. And so Saul, uh, the book of Proverbs is already finished. So let's turn actually now to my own study. This will occupy the bulk of my commentary, the bulk of my study, for this time and once we're done with this we will turn to another trinitarian view of this passage i know it says proverbs 15:32 but don't be confused this nevertheless it's going to include proverbs 8:23 this is done by christian apologist sam shamoon um muslim turned christian apologist and his perspective of this particular passage is slightly different than my own, but it's still Trinitarian. So we'll get to his in time. But first, I want to deal with mine since it's a direct answer to the biblical Unitarian view. So let's read this and um, take a bite out of it. We won't finish it all in 30 minutes we've got allotted. But let's start going. Proverbs 8.23, the wisdom of Proverbs and the Logos of John, a Trinitarian understanding by Ariobin Lyman Hanavi. All right, introduction. I need to use this and go like that. Proverbs 8.23 is one of the most important and enigmatic passages in the Old Testament. In it, wisdom personified speaks of her own existence from the beginning of creation. I say that backing up to verse 22 for context, here's what we read. And then I've got the Hebrew right here for you, which reads, Adonai Kanini Rishit Darko Kedem Mipaalive Meats. And the um, part that we're going to kind of park out on a little bit is the uh, part here. Uh, Adonai possessed me at the beginning. Adonai possessed me at the beginning. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. And what does it mean for the Lord to possess 
wisdom and what does it mean at the beginning the reshit the beginning of what the beginning of the creation the beginning of eternity what exactly are we dealing with so you can see the quote from uh the nasb the lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old nasb that's verse 22 but then i go on to say that next the verse specifically in question that but uh, biblicalunitarian.com highlights is uh, in the Hebrew it says meolam nisachti merosh mikadme aretz and we have two words that are borrowed from the previous verse we have um, uh, rosh which was uh, rendered as reshit in the previous uh, verse verse 22 and then we have mikadme um, which is um, the begin or from the um, uh, earliest or the establishment of the earth the word establishment the 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 kedem which was mentioned earlier um right there so these two words oops yeah that one and that one show up down here in different forms as here and basically there uh, eretz also shows up i think there's eretz earth um, nope, it doesn't show up there. But um, the point that we're going to be trying to establish, here's our rendering from the NASB, from a, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. The, the point we're going to try to establish in my little short essay here is, what is really meant by the Proverbs describing wisdom being, uh, what does it say, established or possessed? Uh, by God and being established from the beginning, right? It's obviously parallel kind of poetic fashion, right? The verses are describing similar events, but it's in poetic parallelism, as is typically the books of Psalms and Proverbs. We find verses written that way. So let's uh, begin to break some of this down. I go on to say this passage from Proverbs chapter 8 as a whole has been interpreted in a variety of ways, but in my opinion, the most common view is that verses 22 to 23 refer to the eternal generation of the Son of God. Now, this is my perspective as a Trinitarian. It is not held by the Arians. It is not held by the Socinians. But I refer to it as eternal generation. And this is a term that the creeds use. This is a uh, term that the church fathers have used. We're talking about eternal generation, meaning Yeshua, the Word of God, the one who exists in the bosom of the Father, he is the one who is spoken of as, as begotten of by the Father, but it is an eternal begetting. So I'm taking great pains to explain that it is not according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, not according to the Arian position that Jesus was created. We can use the word begotten and generation, but we have to include the word eternal if we want to give it the scriptures their, their proper weight and their um, full expression of the way Yeshua uh, is, is demonstrated who he is to be in the Bible. I go on to say that this understanding of the eternal generation is supported by the New Testament, which applies Proverbs 8.23 to Jesus Christ, e, i.e., or e.g. John 1, 1-2. And that's a great place to park out, but we we're not going to do it tonight. So, this is my own essay. I go on to say, in this essay, I will argue that the Trinitarian interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 is the most faithful to the text and the context. I've always maintained that Biblical Unitarian has half of the picture. 
and the half that they've got is actually not too bad. It's not too far from the truth. They hold to a monotheistic position that God is the only God. Well, guess what? So do I. Yeah, that part about God is accurate. He is the only God. I don't hold to two or three or four or five or ten thousand gods, right? We're not talking about pantheism or some form of you know, Indian religion where there are millions of gods? No. We're talking about one true and living God, and He is God. And the difference I make with Biblical Unitarian, right, they stop there, they cut themselves short, they're reading the Bible with only one eye open. What they do is they do not allow the New Testament to have its full authoritative say in the matter. And so they read the New Testament, but I think they don't take it seriously, or they don't take it authoritatively. So they read passages out of the New Testament, and they neuter certain verses that talk about Jesus existing from eternity or coming down from heaven, you know, coming from the Father, being sent from the Father, um, the only one who's truly seen the Father or can see the Father, the only one that expresses the Father fully, the one who is the agent of creation, right? I mean, it, it... it makes me scratch my head and wonder with open amazement how the Socinian slash Biblical Unitarian position can hold any weight when Jesus is described in the New Testament as the one, the agent of creation, the one through whom all the worlds, the universe and the world was created. Obviously, he predated his birth in Bethlehem if he's the agent of creation. I mean, at least the Arians slash Jehovah's Witnesses give Jesus that um, that position. They they give him that allowance. They 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 give him that uh, authority. They say, "Yeah, you're the one who created everything. You're the first one that was created by God, and then you created everything else." I mean, even though I don't hold to that position, but at least they move him up the up the chart closer to God than the Socinians place him all the way down at the human level and don't give him any divinity. So, I believe that the Trinitarian position is the most faithful. What that what I'm implying is that the other two positions, the Socinian and the Arian, they have some truth that they bring to the discussion, right? Um, Biblical Unitarian has part of the truth that they're describing, and then when we look at the Arian position, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, represent, there's a little bit of truth there too, right, about Jesus being the one who created everything, right, in opposition to the Socinian slash Biblical Unitarian position that says that Jesus couldn't have been the creator, at least the being that was the creator, i.e. the agent of creation, he couldn't have been that position in that position because he wasn't around yet. Instead, God only had Jesus in his mind from eternity past. He was a thought that existed in the mind of God, something that effect. And that's and then they completely turn John 1 1 on its head, uh, saying that it's not really the creation account that John is talking about when he talks about in the beginning. Instead he's talking John's talking about some the new beginning of humanity through the bringing it of Jesus and the New Testament into the picture, i.e. the the beginning of the salvation of humans through Jesus. In that beginning, instead of the beginning of the creation of the world, they don't push that far back because they can't because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have been around yet. Okay, so I go on to say in my own uh, essay here, I will also demonstrate the weaknesses of the Unitarian understanding of this passage with special mention being made. I go on to say, again, we're reading a, a, a um, short essay that I put together, I don't know, I think it was like three three months ago, if I remember. 
Um, no, maybe it was longer than that, about four months. It was, it was earlier this year, sometime near uh, in the spring. But I put this together. It's not available anywhere on my website or anything under on my any blogs or anything like that. So the only place you're going to get it is right here in this YouTube and iTunes um, teaching exposition. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to demonstrate the weaknesses of the biblical Unitarian position and how that the understanding of this passage with special mention uh, being made of the position held by biblicalunitarian.com. In case you aren't aware, I'll just tell you this up front, but we'll, we'll, I'll talk about it in time. Biblical Unitarian is merely one of the un, many Unitarian positions that are out there. So there's an umbrella corporation known as um, Unitarianism, of which Biblical Unitarian is simply one of those branches, you might say. And later on in my commentary, when I get when it comes time to describe the positions held by Biblical Unitarian as well as the Unitarians, I, it becomes um, convenient for me to simply lump the two together. Uh, but we're not there just yet, so let's just keep reading. I go on to say that along the way, I will also offer some brief Hebrew insights from the Masoretic text of Proverbs eight twenty three, like I just read the Hebrew a moment ago, along with some insights from the Greek of the Septuagint LXX. Let me go ahead and read that for you right now before we get too much further. So I'm reading this part right here, starting at verse 22 um, from the LXX. We have Kurias ektisin me arkane. I'm sorry, me arke. Yeah, no, me arke. Let's try that out. Let me start over. Kurias ektisin me arkein hadun autu ace erga autu. And then continuing, well, the translation would be he established me before time was in the beginning, before he made the earth. And then continuing in verse 23, which is the verse we're going to get most of the mileage out of. Pra tu ionas etha meliosin me in Arke. And the translation would be, even before he made the depths, before the fountains of water came forth. So those are the Greek renderings. And so as I mentioned in my own commentary, we're going to look at some of the highlights of that Greek when the time comes. And then I go on to say that lastly, I will conclude by drawing some important parallels between the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 8 and the Logos of John chapter 1 before finally drawing my essay to a close with uh, 12 summary uh, bullet points so that you can figure out where we went with my particular essay. So, um, we've got about 10 minutes left of my study. Let's keep going. Let's, let us begin by defining Unitarianism as a whole, as over and against Orthodox Christian beliefs. And then, let us provide a brief representation of this verse as supplied by BiblicalUnitarian.com. So, let's start with this particular uh, paragraph heading, Unitarian Imp Interpretation, with an emphasis on BiblicalUnitarian.com. Here's what I have to say in my essay. Trinitarian Apologetic Web Resource GotQuestions.com has this to say about Unitarianism and Biblical Unitarianism. Biblical Unitarianism, contrary to its name, is not biblical. Let me just pause and say that um, nearly everything that GotQuestions.org is it .org? It's uh, GotQuestions.com, sorry. Nearly everything that uh, biblical, uh, that uh, GotQuestions.com has to say about um, Trinitarian versus non-Trinitarian um, beliefs, I hold to. I, I, they are, a, I believe, a kind of a dispensational outfit. Um, so I have some disagreements on their eschatology perspective. But when it comes to Trinitarian apologetics, um, I'm right on board with, what, with the way that they describe 
um, their Trinitarian beliefs. So that's why I pulled them into my um, essay here. They go on to say that, um, yeah, so surprise, surprise, Biblical Unitarian Biblical Unitarianism is a um, misnomer. It's a contradiction in terms. They're not biblical. The, the problem, they go on to say, is their false view of the nature of God and the person of Christ. Biblical Unitarians differ from other Unitarians, such as um, Unitarian, Unitarian Universalists, in that their claim that the Bible is the source of truth, right? That's why um, they refer to themselves as Biblical Unitarian. And this is a doctrine that the Universalists actually deny. Interesting for you to note. They go on to say, the term Biblical Unitarianism can be traced back to the 1800s as distinctions were being made between Unitarians who held to Biblical inspiration and those who did not. I believe later on they're going to talk about um, Socinianism, and if they don't, then I will myself. About Socinianism being the early version, the kind of the... um, beta version of what is now known as Biblical Unitarianism, and Socinianism goes all the way back to the first century. But, um, Got Questions continues, Biblical Unitarianism represents the more conservative uh, so, quote-unquote branch of Unitarianism since it has not jettisoned the Bible as a source of truth. And for that part, I at least applaud Biblical Unitarian, right? Biblical Unitarianism remains that con- contain. Uh, uh, retains that conservative aspect and keeping the Bible as, as far as they can ascertain, more authoritative, even though in the end uh, their views end up being non-biblical because they reject the authority of the New Testament in its in its total representation. I know they pull in the part of the New Testament. They, they, they say that they believe in the New Testament, but um, the fact that they deny Jesus his full divinity and don't give him the um, full weight of being explained as one who comes down from heaven, the one who is the co-creator with God, etc., etc., this means that they don't really give the New Testament its full authority. So, when we talk about comparing their conservative view against universalism, uh, biblical uh, universalists themselves, then yes, we're looking at uh, the, the liberality of the universalist perspective just throws the Bible out and says, well, let's just bring in every other kind of religious perspective and um, uh, include it on the table for discussion and give it some authority. And in that regard, they just bring in Buddhism and Hinduism and you know all forms of um, religious perspectives like New Age thought and things like that. And so the the universalist version of Unitarianism is quite liberal and really doesn't even deserve to wear the label Christianity, in my opinion. All right, let's keep going. So, this is a quote from gotquestions.com. They go on to say that many beliefs of biblical Unitarians are in keeping with Orthodox Christian beliefs. And I I keep bringing that into the discussion for us because I want us to realize that to the degree that biblical Unitarians embrace Jesus as a true Messiah and the only way to achieve permanent and lasting salvation in God's perspective, then I applaud them. They are my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they reduce Christ to a mere human being and they don't give him the, the status of true God divinity. But if they have embraced Jesus the way that I have, they have a, they have a, a, a true faith in, in Jesus as their Savior, then I don't see why we wouldn't consider them as brothers, but their other belief system that strips Jesus of his divinity is borderline heretical. And in the end, I believe that the Bible 
steers a genuine Christian in the direction of embracing him as Lord and as God. But initially, when a person comes to faith, perhaps that understanding and knowledge of Jesus as God is not as prominent in the what we might call the, the acceptance uh, package where Christians, uh, where um, unbelievers uh, make a decision for Christ and become genuine Christians. So I'm not trying to judge the biblical Unitarians on that on that front. I'm not going to bring that into the matter and say biblical Unitarians are not true Christians. They're not saved. I, that's not my department. It's not my place to say so. I don't know if they're genuinely saved or not. I can only tell you what the Bible describes as a genuine salvation uh, requirement, and therefore, to the degree that they embrace that truth, then yes, they would be Christians. But when it comes to rejecting Jesus' divinity, in other words, I don't believe that that is a necessary ingredient of salvation, but, in other words, a prerequisite, but it is the direction that the Bible orients a genuine believer so that in the end it becomes a part of the genuine salvation experience that is embracing Jesus as Lord and as God, as human and as divine. It it later then becomes, and that's why we can see passages where Paul talks about, you know, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in the book of Romans chapter 10. And it is quoting from the Old Testament book of Joel where it's referring to Yahweh calling upon the name of the Lord. This is one of many ways that the New Testament passages, the Apostolic Scriptures, overlaps the roles and prerogatives of God the Father, Yahweh, with God the Son, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. It overlaps Him on purpose to give us these snapshots and vignettes of the identity of God in the Old Testament as compared and sometimes contrasted with the identity of the Son in the New Testament. Okay, let's keep going. So, um, we're within this quote from Got Questions. However, speaking of Biblical Unitarian, they depart from orthodoxy on one major point in regards to their doctrine of God. Biblical Unitarians deny the Trinity, teaching that God is one being, right? Trinity hints the word Unitarian in their name. So they are monad. They are not triadic. They are monadic. They are. They believe in God as a monad. He's one. He's not multiple. And when they say multiple, we're talking about persons. So I like to often re- um, remind us that when the biblical Unitarian reads Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, that reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That word Echad to the biblical Unitarian evokes personhood. So that they read the verse as if it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. They supply, I know that's not how their translation reads, but that is the essence of their theology, that God is one person. He's numerically one with the figure that we know as God the Father. Father, God, and God are the same person, the same being. There aren't any other persons in view. And yet, we Trinitarians, we Orthodox Trinitarians, when we read that same passage, here is the Lord of God, the Lord is one, we understand the word one to imply um, the deity, the um, not just the person of God, I'm sorry, not the person of God, but the being of God, the essence of God, the nature of God, the being that is identified as God on the class level. Here always are the Lord of God, the Lord is one God. He is 
the singular God that there is. He's the one and only God. He's the exclusive God. One translation that is endorsed by Jewish, uh, by rabbinic Jewish authorities is, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Taking that word achad to mean alone, exclusively. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord exclusively. So that's the way I read the passage out of Deuteronomy. And this is in agreement with what the New Testament teaches on Trinity, that there's only one God. So it begs the question why Biblical Unitarian doesn't accept that uh, Trinitarian perspective, why Biblical Unitarian rejects it. Because we are monotheistic, we both, we're both monotheistic, both Biblical Unitarians and Biblical Trinitarians. We're both monotheistic. And yet, that's the person thing that that we get we we both have disagreement with. So, um, continuing this quote, Jesus, according to biblical Unitarianism, is not the eternal Son of God. Rather, he was created by God in the womb of Mary. Notice the origin of Jesus, according to biblical Unitarian slash Socinianism, is in the womb of Mary. This contrasts with Orthodox Trinitarianism that teaches that Jesus has no creation. He was never created. He exists eternally in the past, just like the Father does and did. And yet, this also is contrasted, this view of Biblical Unitarian, where uh, Jesus was created in the womb of Mary. This is also contrasted against the Arians, the modern J. Jehovah's Witnesses, and those like them that teach that Jesus was created by God before the world was created but he's still a creation he's a construct he's a fabrication he's he's a he's a thing he's a creature according to um arianism slash jehovah's witness all right let's continue with this quote jesus was later exalted by god and given authority over creation making him like god but he remains a finite separate being with a beginning and a beginning being human. So, um, we're reading about uh, Biblical Unitarian as seen through the lens of GodQuestions.com. Let's continue. We've still got um, just a little bit of time. I know I'm, I'm, I might even be going over, but I want to finish at least this quote. As you can see, there's just um, three short paragraphs left, and that's where we'll stop. We'll pick this up next week with my own words. Quote, In denying the Trinity... Biblical Unitarians also have a false view of the Holy Spirit, whom they consider to be identical to the Father. These um, details that we're reading about from uh, Got Questions, I've already mentioned these earlier on in my commentary, in, uh, uh, and I already mentioned them earlier on in this particular teaching. I, I usually open up with this so that you can get an idea. For people who watch these videos brand new every time and don't follow them in series, every video is kind of a, a brand new video, a, a one-off for them, so I have to kind of repeat myself over and over again for those people who are not going to follow the series. Uh, this quote continues, Since God is holy and is also a spirit, they reason, Holy Spirit is simply another name for God the Father. And then, uh, we're, we're almost done here, Biblical Unitarian views of God are unbiblical, contrary to what their name is, because Scripture clearly teaches that the Son of God existed prior to all creation, right, John 1, 1 through 5, that Jesus is truly God, Titus 2, 13, and that the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father, Matthew 28, 19. You catching that? 
And then finally, this final paragraph, denominations that fall under the category of biblical Unitarianism include the Church of God General Conference, the COGGC, and the Christadelphians. And that um, footnote number one that you can see on your screen right now, if I were to click on it, let's see what happens. Yeah, it drops down to gotquestions.org under their article of biblical Unitarianism. All right, and so um, with that, we'll uh, dead end right here. We'll pick this up next week um, with another short quote from BiblicalUnitarian.com. We'll reread their explanation, which is so short that we can read the entire um, explanation at length. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I bless you, Lord, for the words that you've given us in advance to warn us uh, and to comfort us. You've given us your assurance that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so it is with that assurance that we know that no matter what we go through, no matter what we experience, no matter what's taking place in the world, that is um, uh, actually absolutely horrific, horrendous, um, appalling, unrighteous, um, ungodly, um, we know that you are in control and that you have not l- abandoned us. And so we look with anticipation for the return of your son Yeshua one day back to planet Earth to take up his rightful place on the throne that you have established for him. We know also that the enemies of our Lord Yeshua will be defeated one day. They will be placed under his feet, including the final enemy, which is death one day. And so, Lord, we continue to avail ourselves of the truths of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit in us so that we can lead lives that are pleasing to you and so that we can lead lives that are a witness to those around us who don't yet know of this blessed hope. They don't know that there is a light and that there is a truth and um, and a a salvation that can be theirs. Um, They're wandering through this world in the dark and um, they have no hope uh, outside of the, the true hope who is Yeshua. So help us to be bold in our witness and to share this um, gospel message with those around us. Um, continue to protect us and to provide for us as your children, as a loving father does, and continue to raise us up um, in these last evil days to be lights. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. 